I was discovering that the person that I thought I was, the person looking back at me in the mirror for 54 years, was a fundamentally different person with different data, with different history, with different ancestors than I knew myself to be. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The New Medicine for Women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. When I was a young girl, I spent a lot of time snooping around the small apartment in New York City that I shared with my mother and brother. I opened drawers and cabinets looking for something, though I didn't know what. That would help me understand why I felt, though I was well-loved, that there was some secret surrounding my mother's pregnancy with me. Then one day, I found it, hidden in a brown cardboard box, both my birth announcement and my parents' engagement party and wedding invitations. And there it was, the discrepancy between the dates. Now, while it may seem like no big deal now, the fact that my mother was several months pregnant with me when she and my dad wed in 1966 or 65, so I was born in 66, was a tremendous source of embarrassment to the generation just above them. And in some ways to my mom as well, because she was just 18 when she conceived me, had to leave college and get married. The story runs even deeper, as I learned later in my life, with the actual circumstances of my conception having possibly been non-consensual. Thus, the secret that led me to search for my story in hidden places was a secret within a secret. My guest today has been a memoirist for her entire adult life and has long explored family secrets through her work. So given my story, I absolutely resonated with her work, even though on its own, it's fabulous. She's a dedicated student of her writing craft and her words reveal her to be also a dedicated student of the human condition, our joys and sorrows, what's seen, what's unseen, and how these weave together to form the narratives of our lives. She's sensitive to what is dear and precious and delicate, the hearts of her protagonists, and both curious and compassionate about her own journey, which she shares transparently and with courage and self-sympathy as she moves through phases, and also at times not so easy revelations, like the one that occurred one fateful day when, at age 54, she received her Ancestry.com results from the DNA test she did almost on a lark. What ensued rocked her world to the core, forcing her to completely rethink her origin and her identity. Danny Shapiro is the author of 11 books and the host and creator of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. Her most recent novel, Signal Fires, which I devoured, didn't want to end, cried through, had my hand over my heart and couldn't wait to get back to, even though I was on a trip to Portugal, 
so I brought it with me, was named a best book of 2022 by Time Magazine, Washington Post, Amazon, and others, and is a national bestseller. Her recent memoir, Inheritance, was an instant New York Times bestseller and named best book of 2019 by Elle, Vanity Fair, Wired, and Real Simple. Her work has been published in 14 languages, and she's currently developing Signal Fires for its television adaptation. Beautiful woman, welcome. Thank you, Aviva. It's so good to be with you. It's really good to be with you too. So when I met you, it was in the pre-COVID world. And inheritance, I don't even think was a glimmer in your eye at that moment. And your world has really changed in so many ways since. So you took this DNA test kind of on a whim. I think I remember in inheritance, you say Michael was going to do it, your husband. You were like, okay, I'll do it too. And you didn't expect it to reveal any family secrets. Now, I know you probably had to tell this story a thousand times, right, by now, but would you walk listeners through what happened next that led you to writing Inheritance? Of course. And every time I tell this story, I feel like I learn something new because it's such a complex, thorny, miraculous in certain ways, um, but complicated story. So yes, um, my husband, Michael, was sending away to do a home DNA test just on a lark. And he asked me if I wanted to as well. And I so easily could have said no, which is something that really haunts me because Mm -hmm. I could have lived my whole life not knowing the truth, which I'll get to in a moment, but not knowing sort of a very, very essential aspect of my identity, which given the fact that I'm a writer who spent my life delving into my identity and my family would have been highly ironic. I've had this vision of, you know, if it's true that at the end of our lives, we have a moment where we can look back and see the whole thing. If that had been me, I would have thought, oh, I missed the boat. I missed it. So I was incurious about my family history, mostly because I knew everything that there was to know, I thought. I come from a Jewish family. Both of my parents are Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. On my father's side, they were storytellers. And so there was really a sense of the stories of my ancestors, very connected to those relatives, those ancestors. That was very important to me growing up. I had portraits of them on the walls of my house and photographs everywhere. And I am an an only child. And so there was was very much um, a feeling of longing for that connection. And when the results came back from the Ancestry.com test, the first thing that they revealed was that I was only 50% Eastern European Ashkenazi, and that made zero sense. It made so little sense that I just sort of put it away and I thought, well, that's ridiculous, and these companies just must get it wrong all the time. But then what also appeared on my results was a first cousin, because for your listeners who haven't done these tests, there's an opt-in or opt-out for being able to see other people with whom you share DNA, both distant and close. First cousins very close. And there was this male first cousin identified only by initials on my page. And he was a total stranger. And that got my attention sufficiently, although still I really felt like this is just wrong. And I'm sure it's not true. It doesn't make any sense. I do have a half-sister, much older than me, from my father's first marriage. And, you know, so we share a dad. And we weren't particularly close, but I remembered her telling me that she had done one of the early versions of DNA testing. 
So I reached out to her and I said, do you happen to have your results? And she did in a computerized file, in a digital file. And there's a site out there called GEDmatch where you can compare two DNA profiles. It takes a second, less than a second. You can upload them just with their codes and compare them. And they will tell you how closely those two DNA profiles are related. So we did this. She sent over her file and my husband uploaded both of them into GEDmatch. And it took a fraction of a second for the results to come back. And the results were that we were not related. Okay, so give us a picture. Your mail comes. You get mm. go to your mailbox, you get your mail, you see these results. Do you wait for Michael and you open them together? Had you opened yours? Were you in your kitchen? What was happening here? So actually they come via email and it was after dinner one night and we were sitting at our home in rural Connecticut in the countryside watching TV after dinner. And my husband's usually multitasking. So he was, you know, he had his computer open and he said, oh, your results are here. And I think I probably said something like, what results? Because I wasn't waiting anxiously for my results to come back. I'd forgotten that I'd even done it. So he opens them and we're looking at them. And that was the first moment was like, huh, that doesn't make any sense. That's weird. But I didn't feel or hear any warning bells, you know, however faint. I didn't feel any sense of anything being awry. As I said, I just thought, oh, this isn't right. So a few days went by. And it was the weekend and a friend of mine was visiting and we were having tea in the same spot, in the same couch in the library. And Michael came in and he was holding his computer open again. And he said, you have a first cousin on your Ancestry.com page. Now, in retrospect, he knew at that moment that this was serious and that it, it meant something dramatic. I was in more denial. I was actually kind of just annoyed that my tea date with my friend was getting interrupted by this nonsense. So it was probably a couple of days later that we had the thought that if I, I really, my husband had the thought that if I reached out to Susie, my half sister, we could get to the bottom of this. And that's what happened. I mean, from that moment, we were actually leaving on a trip the next morning. So I was packing, I I stuffed in piles all over the place. I was making lists and checking things off the list. And I was in my office upstairs in my house and I heard Michael's footsteps basically thundering up the steps. They were urgent footsteps. And he came in and again, computer was there in his hand open and he sat down next to me and he showed me this series of codes and numbers. And I said, well, what does that mean? What does MRCA stand for? Well, MRCA stands for most recent common ancestor, but I did not know that. Mm -hmm. And the most common, recent common ancestor between my half-sister Susie and myself was five or six generations. And that may not sound like a lot, but it's a huge amount. By five or six generations, especially, you know, among ethnic groups, everybody's related at a certain point. What was the fog lifting or this coming out of denial and facing reality? What were you realizing? Michael said, you're not sisters. And I said, no kind of sisters, because we had always referred to each other as half-sisters. And he said, you're not, you don't have the same parent. 
what that felt like in that moment was a kind of combination of dissociation, physical shock, you know, like groundlessness. I just imagine feeling like the blood got pulled out from under me or vertigo. Exactly. And, and, you know, when we think about that expression, the rug was pulled out from under me, we say it all the time, but what does it really mean? It really means groundlessness. Mm-hmm. It felt, I mean, my mind started racing, which is, I think my response generally to trauma is I'm going to find the solution. I'm going to figure this out. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leap straight into figuring this out. So part of my brain was very sharp and very agitated and completely focused on figuring out what on earth this meant and was working overtime almost instantly. But the other part of me felt like floaty and almost, you know, breathless. It was truly, I mean, I've come to understand what a trauma that was. It wasn't an outside trauma. It wasn't like an accident or a fire or a an, an assault or an incident. It was an inside trauma. I mean, it was happening. It was me. I was discovering that the person that I thought I was, the person looking back at me in the mirror for 54 years, was a fundamentally different person with different data, with different history, with different ancestors than I knew myself to be. And because both of my parents were gone, I mean, that was a blessing and a curse. Um, It was a blessing in the sense that I think that might have been a very difficult situation. I've talked to countless people at this point who have been in that situation, and that's not always a good thing. But then being gone meant it's going to be impossible to get really clear answers. And at this point, if your mother is your mother and you're 50% Ashkenazi Jew, it can only be that your father isn't your father if you don't share the same sister. So that's this big reveal. That's part of what my racing mind was doing. I mean, I did a number of things. One was maybe my mother's not my mother. Maybe nobody, maybe I actually had an elderly cousin in the next couple of months. I sent her a DNA test and, you know, begged her to spit into the plastic vial because I needed a tent pole. It felt like the whole world was up for grabs and anything was possible. And so I did ascertain that my mother was in fact my biological mother. But the fact that Susie and I were not related could only mean that, well, it it could have meant, I suppose, that our father wasn't her father, but I knew that it didn't mean that. And that is the very sharp sense of revelation that started happening very, very quickly, almost like dominoes, you know, like in my being, like I, many things started running through my mind. One was, I don't look anything like my dad. I didn't look anything like either of my parents, actually. And I had been feeling questions my entire life about, you know, like jokes about, you know, where do you come from? And constantly people telling me that I didn't look Jewish, constantly people feeling moved to share that, you know, that observation with me. Susie looked very much like our father, walked like him, sounded like him, uh, was of him. I understood that if he was not the father of one of us, that it was me. I want to swing back around to this knowing in a minute, if, if you don't mind. But in your book, you really also deeply elucidate the reality that you were much closer with your father or the man who raised you as your father, then your mother, 
So now you've got this even deeper disconnect to something it seems that was your anchor in your family, this love and this relationship. How was that for you? That is such a profound statement, what you just said, and so accurate. And also makes me realize that I'm grateful that I didn't know sooner. I think it would have flattened me as a child, as a young woman. In the wake of his death, he died when I was 23. And I, I mourned him and I, I really formed my identity in many ways, especially after the accident that killed him, thinking of my father as my North Star. I still do. But the shattering realization that we weren't related biologically, that, and the question of, did he know that? And I very much formed myself in a way toward my father or toward wanting him to be proud of me in a kind of magical thinking of way, you know, uh, hoping that he could see the way that my life had turned out because I had been such a hot mess when he died and he didn't get to see me be a grown woman. He didn't get to see me have a family. He didn't get to see me succeed in what I do. And, to, and he didn't get to see me honor him. And all of my work was in a way honoring him. Such an interesting revelation in the sense that it seems like many adopted children ultimately go through some revelation where they find out that they are adopted and their parents aren't their parents in it, but they are in so many cases. And yet this new era of this ancestry testing and DNA testing is blowing the lid open on so many of these relationships that we thought were one thing and then turn out to be another. But it, it sounds so beautiful that even though he wasn't your biological dad, it doesn't feel like you don't see him as your father still. So. I absolutely see him as my father. And it was very interesting. At first, I mean, this has been a journey. It's been six and a half years since I made that discovery. It was in the spring of 2016. And at first, I felt very angry, very betrayed. Well, I suppose I should back up and, and just say what I was able to discover very quickly, because this has to do with the sharpness of my mind and kind of the way that and in a way, it also has to do with memory. And I think this is true for all of us. When something is very important, I think it lodges somewhere in our psyche, even if we sort of file it away. And even if we don't register it consciously as important at the time. And that same night that I made the discovery about my dad, I remembered in complete clarity a conversation I had had with my mother. 30 years earlier, in which she sort of stumbled and she let it be known that I was conceived via artificial insemination, that she and my father had had trouble conceiving me and they had gone to an institute. That was the word she used in the conversation. 30 years later, I remembered it in Philadelphia and that there they had undergone the process of artificial insemination using my father's sperm in order to have me. And the moment that I was looking at that result with Susie, click. I, I knew that that meant that either they had used a donor or that the Institute had used a donor, but somehow this wasn't my mother had an affair. This wasn't, you know, and, and if I didn't have that piece of information, I would have been left simply holding a massive mystery and not have any way forensically to solve it. And so the awareness 
that my biological father must have been a sperm donor was sort of the the first step in coming to know everything that I was able to come to know. So from those early days, what I felt was, so my parents went to an institute, they used a sperm donor. On some level, they must have known, or did they know? I learned as much as I could about that period of time in medicine and reproductive medicine. I came to the conclusion that it was highly unlikely that they did not know. And what I felt was a sense of betrayal. I really, really believe that we have the rights to know whatever there is to be known about our identity. And that was willfully kept secret. And initially, I was very focused on what they knew and what they didn't know. That was my biggest focus. I was even more focused on that than who's my biological father. I wanted to know, did my mother know and not tell my father? Were both of my parents fooled by the Institute who, who just used donor sperm without their consent? Or did both of them know and make a decision that they were going to go to the grave with that secret? If you could pick the answer, which do you almost wish would have been the truth? Because you, it's almost like you're holding two realities at once. You're glad you didn't know when you were younger, yet you feel betrayed that they didn't tell you. And I wonder how many families, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but struggle with this. Do we tell the secret? Do we not tell the secret? How do you handle that internal conflict of which one do I wish was true? That's changed over time. I think initially, I really wished that they didn't know and that therefore the the three of us were always in the dark and somehow this was operating within the fabric of our family because it was, Mm -hmm. but that at least we were all on a level playing field together. In some ways, it sounds like you wanted to hold the belief that your dad never didn't know that you were his biological daughter. That Yes, I initially felt that way. In the metabolizing of all this over years, I don't feel that way anymore. And what I've come to understand about reproductive medicine and the way that it was practiced in the early 1960s when I was born was that there was a culture of anonymity and silence around all of it. It was relatively new, the idea that adoptive parents ought to consider telling their children. And many still didn't at that time, but many also did. In the case of donor conception, there was so much around it that was filled with shame, with religious prohibition, with secrecy, with the guarantee of anonymity, because the idea that there would ever be a moment in the future where there would be these home DNA tests and you could spit into a vial and send it off and there would be this thing called the internet, that would have been beyond Orwellian. That would have been the stuff of absolute futuristic, probably dystopian science fiction. Nobody could have imagined it. So in a way, it was like the perfect crime. The donors were told that no one would ever know and therefore they were comfortable donating, and they were often medical students. The parents were told that no one would ever know unless they told them, and to tell no one. So they were instructed to basically go home and not tell their own parents, the grandparents, not tell their siblings, never tell, never breathe a word. Oh, and and also, one of the things that I learned, and this actually isn't in the book, because I learned it after I finished the book and after it had been published, was that 
the degrees to which these clinics and hospitals and doctors and institutes would go to make the couple who were trying to have a child using donor sperm, to make them feel that there was some kind of deniability there. They were told to have sex before the insemination, and they were told that the husband's sperm would be mixed with the donor sperm, but it wasn't even articulated in such clear terms. It was called a treatment. Such a gentle word. It was called a but treatment. It always remained plausible that for your parents that your father could be your biological father or not. Exactly. And the other thing that they did, which I heard directly from a woman who did conceive her children at the same institute where I was conceived in the same year. So really, it's as close to the room where it happened as I was ever going to get. She told me a couple of things. One is, she said, your parents would have known what they were there for. Everyone who went there knew what they were there for. Two, that the doctor who ran the, scientist rather, who ran the institute went to great lengths to make the husband feel that it could be his child. So even if a man was completely sterile, he would never tell a man he was sterile. And third, in her case, when she became pregnant, they called her with the good news and they said, congratulations, it's wonderful news, you're pregnant, but it's so interesting, your blood levels show that you must have already been pregnant when you got here. And that is such a statement also on the shame that women carried around infertility, even if it was male infertility, it was always blamed on the woman. So it kind of creates this situation for the rest of the world of denying the infertility and not having to talk about that either. Yes. When my parents went to the Institute in Philadelphia, it was a late in life marriage for both of them. They had each been married before. My mother was nearing 40. She was probably 37 when they first started going. My father was just about 40. And my very strong hunch is that they had multiple miscarriages. I mean, I know they had multiple miscarriages, but my hunch is that it might have been their biological child that they miscarried because the problem, the infertility was my father. And doctors, as you know, they really didn't ever want to tell a man that, you know, it was the easiest thing to test for, the easiest thing. But instead, they would do invasive tests on the, on the woman to figure out what was wrong with her because male infertility was so shameful. And so I think that they may have started even with artificial insemination with my father's sperm, but then it moved into the treatment um, because it wasn't going to happen because his sperm was really no longer viable. Uh, it had been viable 15 years earlier when Susie was born, but it was no longer viable. So depending on what people's relationship was with the process, with their own shame, with their marriage, with their closeness, with their relationship to the truth and how important the truth was to them, this story could sit anywhere along a continuum. People's ability to bury the truth within themselves because of their own shame. Well, this is one of the most fascinating things to me about the entire story and the years that I've spent thinking about it, because I believe that my mother could have passed a lie detector test if asked the question, is Danny Paul's biological child? I think that when she became pregnant, it would have been so untenable for her to not know who the father was that she would have decided that it was Paul's biological child 
and her anxiety must have been through the roof. She used to tell a story when I was growing up that was so bizarre. I never knew why she continued to recount it. And it was about my birth, which was at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And I had an uncle, my mother's younger sister's husband, who was a surgeon. And she talked about his being in the delivery room, that he took the day off from work and that he was in the delivery room. And the reason that she gave for his being in the delivery room is that she had taken an anti-miscarriage drug. It wasn't DES, but it was something else that was prescribed, I think, post-DES that caused girl babies to be born with both sex organs. And she would say that that was her terror and that when I was born and by planned C-section, my uncle Hyde turned to her and said, Irene, it's a girl. It's a perfect, beautiful baby girl. Now, that story is much more interesting to me now because what was her terror? Was her terror that she had taken this drug that had a rare side effect? Or was her terror that the baby would sort of come out and just, and be obviously not my father's child or be a stranger or to her? Like, what was her terror? And I have thought over these last few years that it's possible that if anyone did know, if my parents did share this with anyone, it would have been with my mother's sister and her husband. But that denial, when my son was born 23 years ago at Mount Sinai Hospital, I mean, talk about triggering. My mother came within an hour or two of his birth, and there we were. And she looked down at him and she said, he looks just like a Shapiro. Danny, the opposite of denial in some ways is conscious knowing. And then there's unconscious knowing. I'm very curious about knowing and the different ways we know things, right? There's the cognitive, there's the intuitive, there's the body-centered. Just before the intro, I shared a story of my snooping around in boxes at home. And in inheritance, you talk about the fact that on some level, you always knew that something inside you had a sense. There were hushed conversations between your parents that there were these tensions, there were things that people said to you, but you also snooped around. You knew something. In the book, you say you snooped around as a girl. And you even say that when you look back on previous memoirs, there are little breadcrumbs that you knew. Can you talk about this knowing this? I mean, I felt it as almost an unrest, that there was some information that led me to have unrest and to, to snoop, to actually dig around looking for stuff as if there was some piece of information that I knew was there that I hadn't been told. And when I realized for me what it was, it was something, nothing nearly as dramatic as yours. But I was like, oh, this answers something. So I'm curious if you can talk about this unrest, this something unspoken and how it felt for you. Also in Family Secrets, the podcast, is this a theme that you found in the family secrets of others? Yes, that's such a great observation and such a great question. And, you know, there's snooping and there's snooping, right? Like most kids do a little snooping. Everybody's curious about their parents. But there was something different about the quality of my snooping. And it sounds like there was something different about the quality of your snooping, of really being motivated by some feeling that there's a missing piece. 
that there's something that just kind of won't let you go, that unrest that you're describing, which is a perfect way of describing it. I mean, for me, I mean, I felt this all my life. There was a sense of um, being other, of not belonging. And that is such a, you know, when I talk occasionally, one of the gifts of being a writer and like being out on the road is people turn up from all different times in your life. And, you know, people will turn up from grade school every once in a while or high school or middle school, and I'll have conversations with them. And clearly they did not see me at all as other or as not belonging, quite to the contrary. And yet I felt so profoundly like something didn't make sense. And if you're a child and you think something doesn't make sense, it's your fault. It's like you who doesn't make sense. And one of the realizations for me was that that was hugely formative for me all the way through my teenage years into my 20s. I really never understood why I had to put myself through so much in my 20s, why my rebellion was really pretty outsized. It took me a while to become the person that I think I always was and I couldn't get to really into my mid-20s before like the neuroplasticity of it all started to kind of like my brain started to gel in some way and and I I became more whole. But there still was something that a former therapist of mine who I went back to see after my discovery just sort of nodded and she said, there was always a subtle disconnect. There was something about the woman sitting across from her patient and how I presented myself and what my affect was and what my constitution seemed to be. And yet, you know, where I came from and the stories that I told that didn't form a coherent picture. Or another way of putting this is my beloved late mother-in-law once turned to me, she knew my mother a bit, and she said to me, sweetheart, I don't know how you've become the person you've become. I don't know how you're okay, essentially, she was saying, but she said, you must have a hell of a constitution. And I remember out of the mouth of someone who had never spent a minute in therapy in her life, my late mother-in-law, I thought, you're right, I do. Why? Where in the world did this constitution come from? Because it didn't come from either of my parents. And then for me, adding to that, the people were constantly pointing out to me that I didn't look like anybody. And, you know, and people often say, well, there are a lot of blonde, blue-eyed Jewish people, sure. But it wasn't just physicality. It was like, I seemed like I was from a different part of the world, just other. But to go to the question of knowing, I did know. And, you know, you mentioned my book on writing, Still Writing, I recorded the audiobook of that not that long ago. So it was after Inheritance came out, after I'd made this discovery. And I had to stop multiple times and like catch my breath when I was recording the audiobook because there were lines in there. There's actually one entire little chapter about snooping. There's a line in there that says, what was I looking for? A clue, a reason. And the word reason is italicized. A reason, a reason for what? There were just these places where I I was so close to knowing, but knowing was unthinkable. I mean, I had the fantasy that I was adopted now and then. I did um, too. That's so mm, well. I used to almost mm. hope I was, but I looked just like my dad. But I also had that disconnect with my mom. And in a way, I felt like she was the one keeping the secret. So in a, in a way, she got the blame. That's interesting because I, I mean, I share that with you about our moms. And when I would think I'm adopted, I would feel some relief about not being related to my mom. It was for but, me. But I wasn't remotely okay with not being related to my dad. You know, and then, you know, when, when the book came out, 
in my first number of events, I noticed there was a portion of people who would come who were adoptive parents. And like moms would sometimes, adoptive moms would raise their hand and, and accuse me of essentially messaging that nature is more important than nurture, that nature is paramount. And, and I didn't know how they could have read my book and had that be the takeaway because my biological mother was someone with whom I did not have a connection. And my dad who raised me, I have a profound spiritual soul heart connection to that I think completely transcends biology. And, you know, it's our story that he allowed me to be born in this way that had to be hard. You know, one of the things I find myself thinking a lot these days is it's it's difficult to be born, period. That any of us are here is a miracle. It's difficult to be born. It's, it's to become a human being, you know, to grow up, to go to middle school, to be an awkward teenager. But it's increasingly complicated by, you know, when there are other factors, when there's a donor, when there's birth parents that are out of the picture. There's a phrase in adoption literature, which is genealogical bewilderment. It's, a, it's just such a beautiful, apt, accurate phrase. The not any less or attached to any less the parents who raised me, but there's bewilderment about my genealogy. There's bewilderment. We are so used to looking for the familiar and at the familiar in our families. And the thing that is so complicated about not sharing genetic identity when it's known, you know, so that I grew up just thinking that it was very strange that I didn't see the familiar around me. I've also had a fraught relationship with my mother. And as a women's physician, I would say seven out of 10 of my patients probably have a fraught relationship with their mother and often much less so with the father, unless there's been some overt abuse. I think about my mom raising me as a single mom in 1966, through, you know, forever and my dad not being there yet me having this fraught relationship with my mom because she was one shouldering everything. And I think about your mom and I wonder, she had the burden of infertility she had to keep this massive secret to protect you, to protect your dad, to protect herself from the shame of infertility. It's what a complex lot of baggage to carry in a relationship with you. And one of the things my mom used to say to me, which is, I do, I look just like my father. And my father was a source of horrible tension and trauma for my mother. So I can only imagine your mother looking at you and saying, you don't look like your father would be the reminder. It seems very complicated for you well, to be and, a child in that household. Well, and if you think about the maternal gaze and how important that is and mirroring, you know, in early childhood and in infancy and how important that is, I have much more compassion for my mother now than I ever did before. But I also, it's a source of really tremendous pain for me that I am aware, like I can hardly bring myself to read psychoanalytic literature about early infancy because I just simply didn't get that. I know I didn't. And that is just like, it's a fact of my life that when my mother looked at me as an infant, she was looking at a secret. She was looking at something that, I mean, I know she, I, she loved me as best as she could, but her gaze, I mean, I've written about this actually, but my mother had eyes that literally trembled. Like it was always so disconcerting to me when I would look her in the eye, her pupils would be like jiggling 
-hmm. Like there was like an internal earthquake going on inside of her that I set off. And that is the story of us. And that's never going to change. And I can't fix that. What I have been able to do is be, I think, a really mirroring great mom to my son. And it's probably a blessing for me that I had a boy and not girls, because I'm not sure I would have known how to do it. I suppose I would have figured it out. Danny, stories like yours are becoming increasingly common. I mean, your story is incredibly unique, but with at-home DNA tests that have become really popular, decades ago, no one would have imagined that these kind of secrets would come out unless someone divulged them intentionally, as you say. But now people are stumbling upon this information without looking. These complex things are happening. So I wonder if you have any advice now that you've been through this process yourself and you've interviewed so many people for either the parents or the children or both that are navigating these revelations. Well, this is, I think, one of the things that's been most healing to me about my discovery and then my capacity to write a book about it, which then became the book that everybody who makes one of these discoveries, you know, they start Googling and it's the book that people read. And one of the things that has been so meaningful to me is that parents who haven't told their children have read Inheritance and make the decision to tell their children, even when it's really hard, even when it's a reckoning. They're aware that my story, I think it's actually made a real difference and a real shift in the world of disclosure. But part of it too is so from 2016, when I made my discovery to now here we are in 2023, 35 million home DNA tests have been sold. And they're very often stocking stuffers or, you know, holiday gifts. And they're given to everybody in the family. And then, you know, a couple of months later, you know, there's a big bump in my book sales because everybody's results are coming back. And it's estimated that around 2% of people who make these discoveries discover what's known in that world as an NPE, which stands for not parent expected. And that's a lot of people. That's many, many hundreds of thousands of people. And so I've, I've noticed a few things. And one of them is people who were coming to my event because my book came out the year before COVID. So I had a lot of in-person events. Elderly men were showing up. And I thought, like, why are you here? You're not part of my usual reader demographic. And it was, they were donors. And then the couples would show up looking kind of uncomfortable and holding hands and looking kind of stricken. They were very often, I started being able to just identify them as I was speaking to an audience. So I would be having, going through fertility and now they're scared? Sometimes going through fertility, sometimes having had their children using donors and not having told them, having grown children who ha they haven't told. And then finally, the people who are making these discoveries who practically radiated like energy. I could like, I could pick them out and just know which, which of the people who were there were going through something like this. But, and, and therapists would come. And so often I was in a situation, I'm not a doctor and I'm not an expert and I'm not a bioethicist, but I do have a great deal of personal experience and now a great deal of anecdotal knowledge and also visited a bunch of bioethics departments as, as a guest like during that whole period of time. But when a therapist would say, what do I tell my patients who are navigating what to disclose or when to disclose? I wanted to come up with something that I could say that was both true and useful and without judgment. And all I would say is they're going to find out because 
that's where we are in time, the unintended consequences of these DNA tests plus the internet. In these years, the stories are multiplying and multiplying and multiplying as the databases get bigger, as you know, home DNA tests become just, it's not a, an anomaly, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lark that people are doing. I had one midwifery client, I remember about 30 years ago, who, when she was a kid, in her high school biology class, they were learning about blood typing. And that was how she found out. She had a blood type that was incompatible with her parentage. And she turned out to be adopted. And that was, she came home from school and said, we got her blood type. And so I think that was really the only way that it happened. And of course, fertility treatments were a little bit less common than they are now as well. So, well, we- that's interesting because they also, one of the things that I did learn and could ascertain happened at that institute when a couple would come in is they would discuss blood type and they would match the donor with the father's blood type so that that wouldn't come up. That's all they knew. And, you know, and that was going to be the fail safe way of nobody ever finding out. And again, you know, as I said, they, you know, they couldn't have imagined a future in which this would happen, but it's also going to end at some point. I mean, even though it's, it's been hard and shocking, it's, I also feel so blessed And I really do have a kind of miraculous story in a lot of ways. But to be in the midst of something that is such a shift, um, the idea that these kinds of secrets were okay to be kept is very much a thing of its time. You know, there's a bioethical term uh, that I learned, which is retrospective moral judgment. And I love I love that so much. I mean, we we do it all the time. We you know, it's one of the ways in which I think. We often don't forgive our parents or our grandparents or our ancestors for doing things that we, with the benefit of the times that we're living in and, you know, and the psychological and emotional awareness that we have, would never do. But we think of them as having all that information and they don't. So what does bother me and what I do feel somewhat like an activist about is that today there are still people who are choosing not to tell their children having babies and choosing not to have that simply be a part of the narrative of that child's life so that it's never, we're going to sit down and discuss this and have a, you know, come to Jesus moment about, you know, we're not going to make this into an event. It's just always going to be part of woven into the story of identity, the way that adoptive parents have learned to always have the adoption be woven into their child's identity. Because it really doesn't matter what our identities are as long as we have access to them. The secrecy was the problem. The fact of it was not the problem. And that said, I might sound like I'm contradicting myself because if my parents had told me when I was a child, I don't think we, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation because I don't think I would have survived. I don't think I would have grown up. I think it would have been given the circumstances of my parents, my relationship with my father, my relationship with my mother, and also the fact that no one conceived in this way was told. I would have felt like the world's biggest unicorn, that this was my story that nobody shared. And it would have been this terrible burden for me to carry. I mean, in 1970, when my parents divorced, I was one of the only children of divorced parents in our entire neighborhood. And it felt very much a source of discomfort embarrassment. I didn't feel ashamed, but I felt awkward and embarrassed in parent-teacher events when my mom was there or 
you know, dad events and my mom was there. And yet now it's so normalized. It's not, yes. not that it's not painful, but it's normalized. I don't think most kids are going around, oh, I'm the only one who has divorced parents. It's just not. That's right. And I'm sure it's becoming the same with fertility as well. I think it's heading in that direction. And that's a great analogy. I mean, I don't think it's quite at the point of, I mean, it's the same with sexuality now. Um, and, and the way the kids are growing up with, you know, with a great deal of comfort around gender fluidity, around sexual fluidity in a way that certainly when we were growing up I mean, didn't exist at all. So today, because you also have these very large groups of people who are discovering that they are half siblings because you have the evolution in donor technology, both eggs and sperm, but much more with sperm because it's, you know, because there can be just so much of it. You have the technology of freezing sperm and you have what is, in my opinion, the Wild West when it comes to a lot of these sperm banks and a lot of the reproductive medicine in the area of infertility, that industry, which is a mess. Have you had reach outs from couples or single people who are seeking reproductive services who are based on your story have now become anxious? Yes. What do you tell them? I've had two conversations recently where I highly encouraged, in both cases, these were single women around 40 who had frozen their eggs and were going to use donor sperm and become single mothers by choice to not use anonymous donors. And it's so interesting because in both cases, these are very smart, very sophisticated, very well-educated women who didn't understand the implication of well, first of all, the whole idea that anyone could be listed as an anonymous donor in the year 2023 is absurd and it should be stopped. I Tell mean, me it, it, it's because anyone will be able to find that donor. And everyone, I think it's safe to say, when they know something about their, or there's a, a hole left in their genetic identity, want to fill it. Even if they, they may not want to have a relationship, they might want medical history, they might want just a picture, a photo, a moment, an acknowledgement, an awareness, this is where I come from. I haven't met a single person who's incurious about that. And so what you have if you choose an anonymous donor is you're setting up your child to grow up, know that they have donor who's their biological father, contend with their own curiosity about that, and then reach the age of 18 or earlier and decide to go find them. And they will find them. As you did. I did very easily. But, you know, people are still under the misapprehension that the donor has to have submitted to a DNA test in order to be in the database. No, in my case, it was that first cousin. It was the mystery first cousin on Ancestry.com. I was able to figure out using nothing more than Google and Facebook who that was and have the awareness, you know, back to that sort of sharp clarity. Oh, if you are my first cousin, you stranger, if you are my first cousin, then an uncle of yours must be my biological father. And then Googling, you know, the cousin's name and his mother had passed away and his mother was survived by two brothers. And one of them was a doctor who had gone to University of Pennsylvania Medical School at precisely the time that I was conceived and who I look exactly alike. You know, in the, in the weird genetic quirks and twists of fate, I look like my donor. 
not like and in your lovely story as it unfolds into its fullness and i'm sure it's still unfolding but in the story you actually do ultimately have a really wonderful encounter with this gentleman who is open to meeting you and seeing you and having some relationship which is quite beautiful you've got some questions answered i feel staggeringly fortunate to have been able to do that and a tremendous amount of empathy for those who can't for one reason or another and it's also this complicated time we're in because these donors who donated when they were very often, you know, 20-something-year-old medical students, they were guaranteed anonymity. Many of them never gave a thought to it again. They went off and, you know, had their own families. In the case of my biological father, he never told his wife of 50 years that he had donated, not because it was a secret. It was because it, it didn't matter. It was completely not something he thought about. And even when he knew that, you know, that the home DNA tests existed and people were making these kinds of discoveries. He didn't once think, oh, maybe somebody will contact me. He didn't think, he thought he was anonymous. And so that's a real moral, ethical, bioethical conundrum that many, many people are facing now, which is what do we owe each other? The children born this way didn't sign the contract. They didn't ask to be born this way. The men who were the donors wouldn't have donated if they couldn't have been anonymous, 99% of them probably. And the closest that I've come to a response to that, which continues to evolve, is I think we owe each other kindness. And that can take many forms. But the idea of, I mean, I've heard many stories of people reaching out to the donors that they've found and just basically met with a slammed door and not interested and just being completely ghosted. And that is fear talking. That is shame talking. That is a kind of tribalism, I think, that's baked into our human nature, where without exception, every single story I've heard, when somebody initially contacts a family that didn't know they existed to say, hi, it seems like we might be siblings or you, we, it appears we have a close biological connection. The very first response in every single family, no matter what the circumstances, is to feel threatened. It's primal. Like we're just protective of our little, you know, inner circle. Tribe or, or, yeah. Our tribe, exactly. And, and sometimes people get over that and sometimes they don't get over that. But that's why I feel really strongly you know, there's there's more political activism, more legislation, more happening now in these six years since I first made made my discovery that has to do with there need to be actual medical histories for these donors, which there aren't. Donors can say whatever they want to say about what their medical history is. Very interesting as a physician. It's not frequent, but it's not rare that I have either the male part of a couple or the women I treat who just have no idea what their medical history is. And it's actually very concerning for them. They don't know what to be prepared for, be preventative of. I mean, that's just one piece of the whole for them. But in the medical world, it's actually quite a significant one. Well, and but there's another piece to that too, which is that if a secret has been kept and someone like me has grown up believing that the dad who raised her is her biological father, I gave incorrect medical history for my whole life, very confidently. I thought I was walking around with a genetic predisposition to heart disease, to depression, 
And when my son was a baby and he was very sick with a very serious rare disease, which not a lot was known about it and it wasn't known whether it could possibly be hereditary, I was giving incorrect medical information about that. I mean, the very first time I went to see a doctor, I think it was an eye doctor, after I made the discovery about my dad and I had to give medical history, my medical history went from father, deceased, 1986, history of heart disease, blah, 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 to father living. He has a somewhat unusual eye condition that I, in fact, it turns out, have as well. But it's dangerous to go in and be confidently wrong about your medical history, too. You may have patients who you think you have the whole medical history of, and, <laughs> it's, true. and it's not. We all want to be loved. We all want to be safe in our belonging and seen, and we all want to know who we are. Your podcast, Family Secrets, which features the stories of other people with a big family secret, often around a fertility issue or sexuality, infidelity, abuse, ethnic origins, it's been wildly successful. And I know that I've read enough of your books. Signal Fires is another one that in a novel form explores what happens when a secret is held or potentially what can happen in terms of the trauma. This is a very different type of trauma where parents are protecting children and a child is protecting another from an accident that's happened. And it's, it's such a beautiful unfolding. I hope everyone will pick it up because I think the mamas, the families, people will love it. But I think that you hit on such a nerve of heart and soul. Whenever I read your writing, I feel like, how did she describe that thing I feel so deeply and closely? I think that is what draws us to you so much in your work. But why do you think people are also so drawn to the podcast? Do people wonder if there's a secret in their life? What is it? I think that most families have some kind of secret, even if it's benign. I mean, if the secret can be benign or the secrets that are kept in the name of love, the secrets that are kept in the name of protecting one another or that sense of, you know, she shouldn't know from it. He doesn't have to know that. So I think that there is a little bit of a sense of relatability, even when the stories are really, really outsized and dramatic. But also, I think, you know, that the podcast evolved in such an organic way, really out of people just starting to tell me they're, and well, not starting to, they always had. I'm somebody who people have always shared a lot of confidences with. And I think that my approach to their stories, which is not journalistic, I mean, I've done journalistic work in my life, but this is not that kind of, you know, dispassionate journalistic interview. I'm coming at it as me too. And so I think that there's a compassion with which I'm able to hold their stories that allows my guests to feel very comfortable really digging into their stories. I mean, a lot of my guests have written books or made documentaries or have made different kinds of works of art out of their family secret, and a lot of them haven't. But the thing I'm always going for is I want my guests to learn something that they didn't know about themselves or think about it in a way that they hadn't thought about it yet. I'm like, I'm after epiphany. I want that to happen for them and for the listener. But I think that there's something very sacred about that process. I feel that way about this conversation with you because you began with this is, you know, how I enter this material. This is how I connect to it. And by framing it in that way, I feel like we're having this really deep conversation about 
you know, about stuff that's really important to both of us, even though you're interviewing me. And I think that that's, that's how Family Secrets works. And also, I've got to say, the stories, they just keep coming. I don't go looking for them, ever. We're completing our eighth season right now, which will drop in early May. What do you and have, like are, 20 million downloads or something? We have yeah, like over 30 million downloads. And, and for a seasonal show, that's completely bonkers because we only have 10 episodes twice a year. We don't have a regular cadence. For me, there's something, it's not that one ever wants to hear that someone else is suffering. I mean, at least in my world, I don't want to hear that someone else is suffering because I feel empathy for them. You know, I'm sad that someone else is suffering. I think that there's so many of us that have dysfunctional families of origin. I think so many women, I, I work with so many women. I, I want to actually, I find myself thinking when I'm in the shower, what would it be like if I wrote a book, Healing the Mother Wound? Mm-hmm. And when we hear these stories, I think of other dysfunctional families and especially the volume of them. For me, there's a less aloneness. There's a sense of, oh, it's not just my family. It's not just my origins that are weird or off. But I think that that feeling that we're not alone, even if somebody has a completely different story than yours or someone else's on the show, feeling like they're not alone in having a troubled family. Yes. That is so deep. Yes. And in the times that people actually come up to me and talk about the podcast, that's what they feel. They feel gratitude for that sense of connection and feeling less alone in the world. There's nothing prurient about it. You know, the title is a little prurient, like, oh, it makes people think, ooh, family secrets, like that's going to be juicy. And it is juicy. But I feel so respectful of what it is to the burden of keeping a secret, the burden of discovering a secret. Very often, the discovering of the secret then goes along with having to keep a secret from other people. And then finally, the one that we've been talking about too, which is the secrets we keep from ourselves. You know, that knowing when you were that little girl snooping, you were keeping a secret from yourself at the same time as you were trying to find out what it was. Both were true. And when I was a little girl snooping, I mean, it was as plain as day that my father wasn't my biological father. But when my book came out on Facebook, my seventh grade English teacher's wife left a comment that was just hashtag always wondered. Well, <laughs> as a podcaster, as a writer, just as human beings, we do create identities and we have these facades, these ways that we appear to the world, sometimes the things we do or don't know about ourselves and the almost like defenses we create to belong or to appear, all the things, right? And I was listening to your podcast, and I love Katie Couric, and I was listening to you interview her, and there was this moment where Katie Couric dropped an F-bomb. Now, maybe I haven't listened to her enough, but I think of her as the beacon of polish and composure, and her dropping that F-bomb was a moment of revelation for me about your podcast, in that you created a safe space where she could strip away the identity that we perceive of her and just actually be whoever she is. And in these secrets, we're actually stripping away identity to become more more of our true selves. And it's just kind of bubbling up for me. This is why I'm thinking about it out loud. But there's something really powerful about this ability to strip away identity 
underneath the secret. I love that, Aviva. I mean, that's that's very moving. I'm getting a little choked up hearing you say that because really the liberation in that, the strength in that, of that kind of stripping away, of becoming more and more ourselves, I mean, in our wholeness, it's not possible when there's some big secret, you know, under the rug over there. And, you know, at the beginning when I said to you, you know, that the feeling that I had of that idea of if when I died, I looked back and I and had, had that moment of seeing it all and realizing I had missed it. It's like there's the beautiful piece of Dharma, which is if you're off by a centimeter when it comes to your own fullness as a human being, if you're off by a centimeter, you might as well be off by a mile. And it goes back to that old therapist of mine saying there was always a subtle disconnect, right? I remember when I was on Oprah for one of my books and we had a long conversation, Oprah and I, and, you know, she's a reader of character par excellence. And I, I remember that I was sitting next to her and she was looking at me and I could tell that I confused her a little bit, that there was something that she was seeing about me that did not totally add up for her in the same way as I did not totally add up for myself. There was something that wasn't entirely true. And I didn't really, I didn't register that. I just was aware that there was this slight no, like lack of alignment somewhere, somehow. Somewhere. And then all those years later, I thought, oh, Oprah saw. I mean, not that she knew what she was seeing, but she saw. Well, um, I do have a question for you. As I'm listening to you as well, one of the things that dawned on me is that as humans, we only really need to keep secrets about something we're ashamed of, or sometimes something that we have done that we're ashamed of that may hurt someone else if they knew. But that is based on cultural expectations of judgment and what's right and what's wrong. If there were things that you could encourage people based on what you've learned from the stories to be less ashamed about, what would some of those things be? Just about everything. I remember years ago teaching at Kripalu one weekend, and at the end of the weekend, I impulsively gave the couple hundred people there a writing prompt. And it was, I'd never done it before, this particular thing. And I, I was sitting up on the dais, so I had a good view of everybody. And I said, I'm going to give you three minutes. I want you to write down the thing about you that if anybody knew, you would die of mortification. No one's going to see it. You can burn it. You can throw it away. No one's going to see it. Okay, go. And from where I sat, it was an amazing moment because no one hesitated. No one was sitting there kind of going like, gosh, mortification, I don't know what that would be. Everyone started writing. And I thought the reason why I was giving the prompt was there's something alive in this if it scares you. And that's a perfectly reasonable reason for that prompt. But when I was driving home, I thought, I just sort of fantasized. And I thought, what would have happened if I had said, I lied, everybody needs to read their mortification aloud right now, which of course I would never ever do and it would be irresponsible and terrible. But what would have happened? The whole room would have been crying. Everyone would have been nodding. Everyone would have been in one way or another saying either me too or that's all. I mean, of course, that there are exceptions to this. There are things that are really, really hard. I mean, signal fires is in a way about one of those really hard things. But for the most part, it's stuff that 
We all have. And the releasing of it, it creates so much room for connection and for love and for beauty and for humanity. And and it just seems to me that that's something we all need more of now than ever. What have you learned about from the stories about what's possible, including when there's some really hard things that have happened in a family around compassion and forgiveness as you created more for your mother, more room for that in your life. And I certainly have as well. And for people who maybe it's harder to forgive, they can find the compassion, but they may still not be able to realign with someone. What are some of the points around compassion and healing and love and forgiveness that maybe have risen for you in in these interviews and stories? I think there's a difference They're related, but I think there's a real difference between compassion and forgiveness. I think it's possible to feel compassion and not forgive. And I mean, selfishly, what compassion really does is make us feel better. I mean, it makes everyone feel better, but it's, you know, to have a compassionate heart is to have that compassionate heart toward yourself as well. And I think that that outward hardening creates inward hardening. But forgiveness is a different animal. And you know, it it might be a radical thing to say, I'm not sure, but I don't know that we have to forgive, you know. And in my own story, I don't know that I really am fully able to forgive my mother for who she was. She did her best, but her best wasn't really good enough. And it was just an unfortunate relationship. But I do understand. And that has released me for anybody, whether they're an artist or a writer or do anything creative or it, do, it doesn't matter. It's it, Reaching that place is a place of tremendous internal liberation. I have one question that I really love to ask all my guests. If you could tell your younger self anything, how old would she be and what would you tell her? Mm. So many ages just flashed before my eyes <laughs> with that question. I'm going to go with 12, 13. And I think I would want to tell her that she is precious just as she is. And to have patience, to have patience with growing up, to have patience with the world, just to, you know, just hang on. And that, you know, there's this beautiful epigraph. One of my books is an epigraph from the Baal Shem Tov. And it is, if I must fall, I will fall and I will be the one to catch me. Danny, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for being such a curious explorer of the human heart and soul and condition and for sharing yours in such a way that brings so many of us a sense of belonging and safety and being part of something bigger as humans. It's beautiful work and I really can't wait for what's next. Thank you for still writing. For those of you who are writers, you do not want to miss this book. It's the 10th anniversary this year. Yes, the 10th anniversary uh, edition is just coming out with a new forward that really is about everything I've learned in the last 10 years and how it applies to writing. It's a beautiful book. Aviva, thank, this is, you create such a safe and inspiring and provocative space to, to talk about everything, to talk about, you know, really the big stuff. And it's a pleasure and an honor. And I just love the conversation. Thank you for that reflection. It means the world to me. I look forward to more conversations with you online, offline. Me too. We'll put everything for you wonderful listeners 
in the show notes. So you can find Danny's website and her books and all the videos on her website that are fantastic and her podcast, all the things. We'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.